Good morning, this is Aaron. Hey, good morning, Aaron. I have something to run by you. Sure, what's up? Well, I got a call this morning from a parent who is looking for help and assistance, and they're not sure where they should go. The long and short of it is their student received a diagnosis with an order on a doctor's script for an IEP. The catch, though, is the diagnosis is gender dysphoria. I'm going to need some help here. Absolutely. Welcome to Season 2 of On the Call, Ennis Britton's special education law podcast. I'm Erin Wessendorf-Fortman. And I am Jeremy Neff. And we are ready to dig into this call. So this one's a fun one, and I think I say this about every phone call that we have, you right? Do. I, yeah. Sorry, it's because I enjoy the, this job, and I'm sorry that I find it so fun. You say that every time too. <laughs> Minor details. So at least with regard to this catch, right? Because it's a big catch with regard to a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, and at least to make sure we're all same paging it, right? We are talking about students with this diagnosis who would also be known as students who are transgender. You don't have to have a a diagnosis to be transgender. However, there are some instances where this is occurring now where you have medical professionals who are diagnosing students, and they've been doing it for years. It exists within the DSM-5. I think there is a TR edition now, so the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th Edition Text Revision, so dsm 5TR. Bam. Yeah. I got it all. But it's existed in there for a number of years. We're talking about squares and rectangles here, I think, right? So so we've got the rectangle of transgender. Within, Within the category of rectangles, there are some rectangles that are actually squares. Those squares are rectangles, but not every rectangle is a square. The squares here are kids who are uh, suffering from gender dysphoria. Correct. Who have gone through the medical diagnos- diagnosis. Diagnosis. It's a good day of speaking for me, too. It's just not working out. I wish the recorder was on earlier when we were talking about all this. <laughs> when I said instead of statistical, I said statistical. Statistical. Yes, I'm well aware that my brain was not turned on yet. But in any event, you know, when we look at it, I know clients, I feel like, have been bombarded with, it's Title IX, right? When you talk transgender students, Title IX, Title IX, Title IX, and then everybody just gets, you know, if you, real uptight, and what do we do? And we have community members all over the place and staff members all over the place, and it just gets ugly really quick. And I know that through Ennis Britton, we had a short series that went out in the summer of 23 on the status of Title IX and the protections for transgender students. And that's not necessarily what we're talking about today, right? But do you want to take us us through real quick, what does Title IX actually say? So we're all, we all are on the same page. Yeah. And Title IX, as we record this, is certainly in the news because we're anticipating in the fall of 23, finally getting revised regulations. Again. Again. Um, So the thing about Title IX is the law has been around for what? A little over 50 years, 51 years this summer, I think. And uh, the law hasn't really changed that much. It's the regulations implementing the law that kind of are on a pendulum that swings every time there's a new occupant in the White House. Right. Um, So we won't get into that because, as you said, Mm -hmm. um, you uh, helped record a great podcast giving that history. Um, But the law is pretty straightforward. Um, 
here, here you go. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, which means the vast majority of people who are listening to this. If you don't fit that category and you're listening to this, thank you, but you know, find something better to do with your time. <laughs> no, or keep listening. Why not? Maybe you just find it intriguing. Maybe they really enjoy my misspeaks and your constant berating of me. <laughs> it could very well be. But it's anti-discrimination, right? Correct. It's anti-discrimination for sex, and, and we're going to be tying it into anti-discrimination for disabilities under Section 504, as well as more of a... Um, an aspirational law in the form of idea with disability. So these all come together. Well, they do. And I don't think we can just look at the gender dysphoria aspect from the lens of, um, we can't look at it just from the lens of, oh, Title IX discrimination based on sex. We cannot do that. We have to look at it from the perspective of, hey, you might have diagnoses. And in schools, when we receive diagnoses, We know what to do with them. We know the processes to follow. And that does not make it any different when we get a gender dysphoria diagnosis. And I just like to make sure that, you know, at least listeners can be aware it is in the DSM-5-DTR, right? But there are certain criteria for why I think our flags are marked a little bit broader for why it is possibly a 504 issue, possibly an IDEA issue. And that's because in the DSM-5, and not to, you know, open up the giant manuals here, but to be considered for gender dysphoria as an adolescent, so we're talking-ish, 12, 13 years Mm old-ish, you have to have two of these markers for at least six months. And it means, you know, an incongruence between one's expressed gender and primary sex characteristics, strong desire to be rid of one's sex characteristics, strong desire for ones of the other to be the other gender, to be treated as the other gender, a strong conviction. I mean, all of these things, I'm going very broadly through Mm -hmm, them. I'm not mm -hmm. reading them word for word. But it's two of those things. Plus, yeah, right? the plus and is key. The plus is a big key because otherwise, I think, rightly, there might be uh, some question. The plus is that it has to also, this condition has to be associated with clinically significant distress or impairments in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Mm-hmm. And that clinically significant distress, to me, tied to functioning really starts to bleed into this, wait a minute, Section 504, anti-discrimination based on disability. I mean, that is, right, a physical or disability under that law is defined to be a physical or mental impairment that significantly impacts one or more major life functions. I, I mean, it seems I think like a there. pretty straightforward connection. What's what's the board game with you? You have the tiles with letters and you have to like have them connect. Scrabble. Scrabble. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was that, but it, you, you know, you berate me too. So, I mean, that in, in Scrabble, that's the connection. That's where yes. the Title IX and the DSM five and uh, Section five Section five hundred four, right? Um, and just to make sure, this isn't just an adolescence and adults thing. The DSM five does describe it for children as well. For children, it's at least six factors, not two factors, for six months, which I do think makes an impact, right? Because we. We're much more, you know, we're children. So Mm -hmm. we're talking under 12 here. Um, And that is similar in terms of the strong desire to be of the other gender, a strong preference for cross-dressing or, you know, simulating the other gender's attire. You know, you're looking at cross-gender roles in make-believe play or fantasy play, the preference for toys, a dislike of one's sexual anatomy, you know. 
And, and some of that stuff, the reason I think that we have to have more characters triple the characteristics, yeah. right? I mean, some of that stuff sounds like a kindergartner just kind of exploring and playing, right? Well, right. I mean, if you have different gendered children and one is the older child, at least from pure non-scientific, just observational, they tend to want to be like the older child, right? I mm -hmm. had a girl first, then a boy. My boy did play dress-ups with my daughter's things. Mm -hmm. And that was not because he's he is suffering from any gender identity crisis. It's because that's what was in the house. Right. And he saw his sister having fun with it. He was a child. But he didn't have that clinically significant distress that, again, is needed, that is impacting the functioning of a child's life. And so that's required in order to receive that diagnosis. And, and an elephant in the room anytime we're talking about anything related to transgender is uh, language. It yep. can be, uh, you know, kind of scary, intimidating. I, frankly, it's intimidating for me as we sit here recording. I, I don't want to let my choice of language get in the way of the message, the no. substance of this. And the same is true in a 504 or an IEP team meeting, any school meeting uh, regarding a transgender student. You know, you were just reading through the DSM-5. It's a clinical manual. So Correct. it uses words like disorder and distress. Mm -hmm. And you might have some parents or children, especially older children, who would say, well, this isn't a disorder. This is who I am. Um, and absolutely. So I think um, just as we read through this very clinically, I think it makes sense in a school setting to read the room yeah. and, and make sure to, you know, uh, account for that. Well, in making sure that this is – it is a sticky area and while I both – I mean I've done – we did the short series podcast. We're talking about it today. Clearly it's also an area that I I feel passionate about in educating individuals about what the landscape is. Not I don't make the decisions for anybody. It is always you know helping educate and inform and advise, right? I wouldn't be a lawyer if I didn't advise on what the landscape is and what the liability potholes are moving forward. And the landscape is sand dunes, I think, oh, right? Completely shifting, shifting a little bit, but <laughs> some stability. You know, there's certainly some trends. Talk to your own legal counsel as you try and explore that. 1,000%. But I do think with this, having to look at it from the 504 perspective is not something that school districts have always considered, right? right? In looking at, we have a diagnosis, what do we do? Now, I'm, we're not saying again, being transgender is a disability. We are not saying that. But what we are saying is that with that diagnosis, then comes a question of, does this fit the need, right, under 504 and or IDEA? Uh, I think we'll talk about here in some case law here in a little bit that they did have, uh, there was a case out of Pennsylvania that did have a student who qualified for an IEP. And so under that category, you could have situations where uh, having a diagnosis of gender dysphoria could equate to receiving an IEP if such things, right, also resulted in the need for specially designed instruction and related services. And Aaron, I would go back to something you mentioned earlier. When you went through the characteristics and you said for adolescents or adults, you need two of these, for children, six of these. But then you highlighted the plus of that in addition to meeting those criteria, it's associated with clinically significant distress and impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas. That sounds like the major life activity piece, the substantial impact on a major life activity under 504 for Correct. me. And I think it is. And I think that's why when if and when parents do come in with diagnoses like this, having that discussion to be able to say, hey, as a school, 
do you want to have any of your medical professionals even come into the table? Yep. And we've had that happen before, mm -hmm. just so that all parties are fully informed of, of what is really happening in the life of this child. So can we go to Pennsylvania real quick? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I mean. Well, wait, wait. Before we do, though, the, sure. the quick version of idea, the, the plus for idea is yes. then the need for specially designed instruction. Correct. You know, we were talking beforehand, maybe OHI, maybe ED, depending on how this kind of manifests itself. But again, plus there is, is there something we need specially designed instruction specifically related? to this. Correct. Okay, Pennsylvania. So now we're going to Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Just a lovely little town. Um, I've, I've never actually been to Nazareth. I've spent plenty of time in Pennsylvania, but mine is more in... Um, Happy Valley. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, or Belfont, uh, not to be confused with Belfontaine of Ohio, spelled very similarly, but pronounced... Belfontaine. Belfontaine? Isn't it? Belfontaine. Yeah. Ohio? Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever. Maybe, hey, email us at uh, podcast at yeah. com if you're from us. Belfountain. <laughs> to tell us whatever. It's Belfont, Pennsylvania, and that's what I know up and around State College. Anywho, this is not where that is. This is in Nazareth. But this case came out in January of 23. So a recent case with regard to a student who had not even yet been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. But essentially... I, I found this case intriguing, one, because there's not a ton of cases out there on this yet. But two, what was happening with this student, so the student came into the district when they were in the fourth grade, um, and a number of years had passed, came in with a 504, student clearly from reading through the case had some behavioral issues, some mental health issues, had gone through some FBAs, some behavior plans, had done all the things. And finally, there was, I believe, in about a year before due process was filed, they did an evaluation under IDEA. Just because of the number of behaviors, the number of di uh, diagnoses that existed out there, student had already been enrolled in a wilderness program um, by the parent. Um, first wilderness program identified some concerns of the student, meaning uh, diagnosis of ODD, other specified trauma, ADHD. What they also did is that the clinical psychologist at this first wilderness program noted the student began identifying as transgender and preferred a different name. Didn't diagnose it, but said, hey, we need to monitor this. We need to look at this. From what I can kind of tell, and I'm piecing together things here, is that once that happened, the district went through their evaluation, they offered an IEP that was um, included a full-time therapeutic emotional support program. So they had said, here you go. This is what we're going to offer. It's within the district. Here's what we can fully fund and support. And that included then access to peers, therapy, inclusion with non-disabled peers, staff who was trained in LGBTQIA plus issues, the whole nine yards. Parent said no. Parent also didn't like the first wilderness program. I have certain assumptions yeah, that I'm making on this. Sense here, a little spidey sense, yep. Mm -hmm. Because parent then immediately sought out a separate wilderness program. I, I I don't know. I have certain preconceived notions of wilderness programs, but maybe they're fantastic. So fine. But parents thought it, it was out of state, single sex therapeutic boarding school. So in a wilderness setting, all of these things tend to send up spidey sense for me, especially then parent went out and also put out a GoFundMe to say, help me pay for my child's expenses for this um, wilderness single sex program for this child. And this is where the school messed up. They should have just made a big contribution to the GoFundMe <laughs> and the parent would have never filed due process complaint. Probably. But instead, they spent their money on defending due process because right. parent unilaterally enrolled, filed notice with a district, right, and then filed due process to say, hey, pay for 
for this wilderness program. And the hearing officer disagreed with the parents completely. The hearing officer actually found for the school. So maybe it was not maybe it appears to have been money well spent in defending this due process. And what the hearing officer found was that they said, listen, there may be cases where you might have a residential program that is appropriate because the students' therapeutic needs and academic needs are all so high that they they need to be in such a program. In reviewing the facts from the hearing officer perspective, they didn't find that. Mm-hmm. They said the grades for this kid were still fine. We had therapeutic needs, not necessarily academic needs, which was intriguing to me. And so they said, no, parent, you need to allow the school district's proposal of FAPE in their LRE You need to allow that to happen. You need to allow them to try this before you go crazy LRE. And so with that, IHO said no. No, I don't think it helped that the program was 11 hours away. Oh, yeah. This is one where the parent just didn't really present a sympathetic case, didn't bother to visit it, right? Didn't go there. um, And uh, the program itself um, wasn't implementing the 504 yeah. plan or an IEP plan. Uh, it wasn't even implementing what it said it was going to implement. Correct. I mean, it was pretty damning testimony, it sounds like, against this program. 100%. I mean, what was you don't often find an IHO to talk about credibility to such an extent, right? It's, mm-hmm. al- it's almost inferred through their opinion who they believe more. This IHO put very specifically that they did not find this program or the parent credible. Yeah. And and mainly, I mean, part of it was, wait, you're sending your child away to a residential program 11 hours away that you've never visited. Mm -hmm. That was not great testimony. Uh, It just wasn't. And they also didn't, I mean, it was clear the school was not going to help support or monitor, right? If we, support is a pretty strong word, especially in the context of what we're talking about. They were not even going to monitor, as the clinical psychologist asked them to, the gender identity issues. Instead, they refused to consider any different names or pronouns or anything. So I think it's clear from the context, maybe the type of schooling this parent was choosing for their child. And the IHO was not going to be behind it. They just were not. They said the public school district staff were better equipped and trained to handle the therapeutic needs, the concerns, and the monitoring that may come with this possible gender dysphoria upcoming diagnosis, right? They, they said that all of these things were appropriate. But do you want to take away the kicker is what oh, I talked to you uh, about Am I allowed before. to? You can oh, take it. This I'll is, give it to I you. I was going to like just kind of softball it back. So this is where it gets really exciting then. So the IHO was also looking at this and based on the way the dist- rather the wilderness program considered or frankly didn't consider gender dysphoria or you know transgender students, anything along those lines, the IHO was also concerned that ordering a district to fund a placement like this could be encumbering public funds. Uh, federal funds in violation of Title IX. Like we'd be feeding the money right into somebody who's saying, Title IX, what's that? Um, and wow, like that, that's, that's a huge takeaway from this decision. Absolutely. It was one where you almost couldn't use some federal laws to then cause a school district to violate other federal laws. And that's where it gets neat, right? When yeah. some of these where we have three or four different sets of laws coming together, it's really interesting. And that's every single case that involves uh, transgender rights uh, um, or law, whether it's employment, student, anything. Uh, we're finding all that coming together. So, all right. So great. What do we do with this then as far as as our uh, practical tips go? I know uh, your big takeaway, I think, was this is more than just about bathroom use, right? It is. It, it's more than Title IX. And I think when we get lost in the 
Title IX, athletics, bathrooms, all of that. And that is a a, a whole separate multi-series pod. And that is a legal advice situation. You have to be beyond that. And when we look at it from the other federal laws, Section 504, IDEA, we have different implications for students and different ways that then students' needs are required under federal laws to be met. Again, I'm not talking bathrooms. We're not talking athletics. We're talking about therapeutic, emotional, academic needs of students. And that is, to me, where, you know, if these diagnoses do come into a school, we talk about, we gather a team meeting. We try to bring in the medical professionals. We talk about what are these students' you know, intrinsic needs of uh, that I just talked about and how can we best support them. And, and I think putting aside any personal views or the views of any of our listeners, um, the way the law would approach this, it, it has nothing to do with, uh, you can't see me making air quotes, but fixing the student. Correct. And that's what the parent in this case, I think, would have wanted. If the school would have said, hey, here's our plan to make sure your child identifies as their biological sex, uh, the parent would have been great. Sign yeah. me up. Um, but that's not what the school is doing. It's not what the school should do. It's not what the law in any way would really support. That's something that is it's more personal, that the family needs to address that as, as they see fit and as the law allows. So we're just concerned about that impact on the school. It's not about making biological sex and identified gender align. Well, right. And, and that is the case with any diagnosis, right? There are lots right. of parents that come in, especially in the IDEA mm-hmm. setting, that are, fix my kid. Well, mm-hmm. We're not doing that. We're looking at what are your kids' needs and how best do we meet those needs. And so when we look at these, I do think we have to be prepared for any parent, either side of this, the parent in the Pennsylvania case, the parent in this other side, that we look at it to go, how do we, how do we balance this? But I also think with that, we need to have our staff ready to be trained. You know, that's the, the theme in season one. Goes on to be this the theme in season two. How do we handle these things? And understanding the landmines that are out there, right, in, in the public sphere for Board of Education members, for parents, for staff, all of those still exist. We are just trying to look at it with a bit of a different lens because it's a lens that has to exist. It's a lane that is there. We have to recognize that it's there and, and maybe even try to consider cases maybe only in those lenses as much as possible. Right, right. Because it's almost easier. How do we work with a kid and meet their therapeutic, academic, and emotional support needs? And that's going to apply regardless of where the courts end up landing on Title IX as relates more generally to the hotter issues like uh, bathroom use. I want to put one more shout out for the short series podcast. We'll put a link in the description for this episode if that's of interest to you. Uh, We've got six episodes that – Aaron and uh, our colleague Gazelle Spencer have recorded and uh, check that out if you want to dive in much deeper on transgender law in general. But uh, this is how we're going to approach it in the context of 504 Idea and Disabilities. Thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share and give us a review on your favorite podcast platform and follow or subscribe to On The Call. This helps other special education leaders find the podcast. If you have a topic you would like to suggest, a question about today's episode, or anything else you'd like to let us know, please email us at podcast at ennisbritton.com. A quick note, this podcast is intended to be used for general information only and is not legal advice. If you have a specific question, please consult an attorney. Whether by phone or this podcast, we're looking forward to being on the call with you again soon.